1: This
2: is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu sam Sam, how was your Thanksgiving? It was excellent. Um, in the absence of our children, uh, who were scattered off to the winds this year, um, my wife and I went over and uh, spent the afternoon with some friends of ours and we took over uh, two turkeys that we prepared. I smoked one and we roasted the other one in the oven, and we were both wonderful.
1: So are these are these fresh turkeys that you get from like a local farm, or you like you go out with your thirty out six and pick them off,
2: or? Uh, no. Uh, car? <laughs> no, we we went out and, we went out and bought them. They were already plucked and cleaned and everything. All I had to do was uh, spatchcock them and season them with some salt and pepper, and uh, then put one on the uh, on the grill to smoke, and the other one went in the oven. And, right. I, and I tell you, well, smoking a turkey—absolutely the best way I've ever had, best way we've ever prepared it. Um, so do you just
1: use the like the grill and you put the like some chips in in some water down by the burner
2: yeah so um you know got uh you know got a grill with three burners on there i just do one burner on the, the one side put the turkey on the other side i uh, got a couple of those boxes with a bunch of holes punched in them put some wet uh wood chips in there some i use some apple chips and Ooh. uh um just let it go for about six hours and and then you get a, a Uh, unbelievably juicy and tasty turkey.
1: All right, now I'm hungry again.
2: (laughs) But the the other thing I absolutely also recommend uh, anytime, regardless of how you're actually going to prepare the turkey, whether you do it in the oven or pretty much anything except frying it, um, is to spatchcock it, which is kind of a weird-sounding word. But basically what you do is you take the the turkey um, and you cut down either side of the spine and take the spine out Throw that in a pot to make some broth uh, that you can use for soup mm. or gravy, and then um, the rest of it, you flip flip the carcass over, press down on it to crack the uh, crack the ribs and flatten it out, and it cooks much more evenly. And you you don't have to worry about having spots in the inside where it's undercooked, and you know it c- cooks very evenly and and also much faster if you're doing it in the oven.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense actually. I I've, I've perfected my technique. For the most part, we had we had a good check. We get them from a local farm, and uh, as the fresh ones actually cook a lot faster than anything store bought, I've I found. Um, maybe it's just because they they're not quite as heavily refrigerated, or or what. But I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. okay. We, enough we of the probably have a much segment. better Thanksgiving <laughs> than Carlos Ghosn did, and we'll get to that. <laughs> oh yeah, but. Uh, let's talk about cars first. And uh, I'll, I've been in a couple of things and uh, I can see that you're in a Volkswagen. So we we'll have a Volkswagen heavy uh, car discussion because I'm in the the golf sport wagon right now. Uh, and last week I had an, an RDX. Uh, so let's let's start with the VW. So uh, what do you think?
2: Uh, I actually I, I really like the uh the new Jetta. So, you know, the the new twenty nineteen Jetta, all new came out earlier this year. It's like most uh front wheel drive uh Volkswagen group models now, uh, is built on the MQ the MQB platform, uh, which now also underpins everything from the subcompact polo uh in Europe all the way up to the ginormous Atlas and pretty much everything in between, the golf and the Tiguan and, and you name it—it uh, it all comes off of this flexible uh, platform architecture that they call MQB. Um, and uh, you know, when I first got into this thing, I my first thought was, why wasn't Volkswagen using this 1.4-liter turbo in the Jetta years ago? It's—it's uh, it's actually a—they've—they've you know, they've had 1.4-liter uh tsi engines which is their their terminology for their uh gasoline direct injected turbos um for uh, probably going on 15 years now and yeah,
1: didn't they have it on the jetta uh hybrid
2: uh no i don't think so i think that had a 1.8 liter maybe they did i i can't remember have to go back and check um but they they never had just a straight up you know, 1.4 turbo in the Jetta before uh, previously, you know, they've had you know various two liter engines and some 1.8 liter uh, turbos, I think. Uh, and of course, the, the diesels, which is what uh, what we owned for close to seven years um, and uh, in the, the previous generation sport wagon. Uh, which uh, up until the, they redesigned it uh, a few years ago was at least in North America was known as the Jetta Sport Wagon. The rest of the world it was always a Golf, but here it was the Jetta. Um, but the the new one, uh, you know, when the the previous generation Jetta sedan was introduced back in like twenty twelve, I think it was, uh, yeah. you know, it. It got a lot of complaints from people because, uh, you know, the Jetta for a long time has had been Volkswagen's most popular car in North America. And North America was always the biggest market for the Jetta. And they were, they were trying to grow their sales in North America. And so they did a lot of things to cost reduce it uh, for North America, which included, you know, switching from soft touch plastics to hard plastics inside you know, VWs have always had a reputation, you know, and, and Audis, you know, for even at their price points, you know, having a more premium feel uh, inside. And when they introduced that version of the, the Jetta, that previous generation of the Jetta, um, a lot of people were unimpressed. And, you know, then there was also the, the whole thing with the rear suspension, you know, when it first came out, it had a twist beam axle, which, you know, is not a terrible thing, but, it you know, for a car that you know had a reputation for being a lot of fun to drive in prior generations you know it really brought down the handling and you know part way through you know when they did their mid-cycle refresh and uh and they launched the gli they went to they went back to a multi-link uh rear suspension and they retained that on this one um so you know it's a it's a typical you know compact um sedan uh you know c-segment sedan Um, the 1.4 liter turbo, uh, with an eight speed automatic, really nice powertrain. You can also get it with a manual, uh, but it's really nice powertrain. It's got lots of torque. Um, you know, and really, you know, I, I, I thought it felt as good as, you know, from, from a, from a drivability perspective and a torque perspective as the diesel that we had for, for all those years. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit lighter than the diesel wagon was. So the performance was, you know, overall pretty comparable, Uh, you know, it's about 140 horsepower, 185 foot pounds of torque. And, you know, like a typical GTDI engine, you know, it's got torque from about 1500 all the way up to red line. And yeah, uh,
1: well, they're doing the same kind of tricks with this engine that they do with the the diesels too, using the turbocharger to get the power in early and mm -hmm. often, right? Like it, it, that kind of thing makes the, the power delivery curve feel pretty similar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to drive rides and, and handles quite good, quite well. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the the new interior is much nicer than the old one. You know, it's got two large um, uh, LCD displays, one in the center uh, stack, uh, which is a touchscreen. And then the instrument cluster is a digital instrument cluster ahead of the, the driver, uh, which you can reconfigure, you know, to show a bunch of different things. The uh, the new, you know, the, the modern VW infotainment system is quite straightforward, easy to use, very responsive, supports Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Uh, and, you know, what they've done, you know, they, they've kind of gone back to the whole idea of, you know, the Jetta uh, and VW in general being more of a driver's car. You know, so it you have the, the center stack is, you know, kind of tilted towards the driver. So, it's, you know, the, the Jetta that we had, you know, the, the center stack was flat, you know, so it was equally accessible to the driver and the front passenger. Now it's tilted a little bit towards the driver, kind of in that uh, 1970s, 80s BMW kind of fashion, you know, where yeah. everything was geared towards the driver. Um, the, you know, a couple of minor complaints uh, I had, you know, one, the... Um, Uh, adjustment for the, uh, for the mirrors, for the power mirrors, it's kind of pushed ahead of where the window switches are on the driver's side armrest. Um, And it's kind of inside, almost inside where the grip is, you know, where you you grab it to pull the door shut when you, when you get in the car. And so it's a little awkward to twist that. Fortunately, you know, as, as long as, as long as you don't have to adjust it very often, it's not really that much of a problem. So it's kind of a minor quibble the more major quibble I had was with the seats you know I mean we had we talked I think last week last time or the the episode before that you know we had a, a listener letter about the seats um, in his jetta uh, in his jetta wagon and he did not did not like those seats you know thought the bottom seat cushions were a little too short um, you know weren't supportive enough Personally, I always liked the seats in our old Jetta wagon, um, you know, and the, the previous generation Golf. Uh, but the the seats in this one, uh, in this Jetta, are a little bit wider and flatter than you know what I've become accustomed to in in most VWs. And uh, so, you know, I thought could have been a little more supportive. Um, you know, they were covered in in uh, VWs uh, Vtex uh, faux leather. Which you know is actually quite a nice material. It's very durable. Um, you know, it looks decent. You know, feels decent. You know, and I have have no complaints about that. It's just the contouring of the seat I think was a little wider and flatter than than I prefer. Um, does it
1: have um, power adjustment for the bottoms and the seat back, or was it the split the one I was driving
2: was all manual, so no power adjustments?
1: Okay, uh, well, that's actually not, does does VW still do what they used to sort of that infinitely adjustable? Uh, backrest angle with the, the knob. Or no, is it...
2: they don't. Oh. Uh, so See? it's got. That sucks. It's got, yeah, it's got the more traditional, you know, uh, lever type system, uh, and it also did not have any kind of lumbar adjustment at all. Uh,
1: See, but and like the exact setting you want is always in between two of those detents.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our our Jetta, you know, um, actually had the power adjustment for the seat back. Had a manual fore aft adjustment. But a power yeah. power adjustment for the seat back. Um, this one was all manual, and uh, you know it, it you know it wasn't terrible. It wasn't terribly uncomfortable. I managed to find a, a good position, but it could have been better. Um, and well, what surprises me is like
1: that kind of thing is going on in an SEL because yeah. the SEL is a
2: pretty
1: well-equipped that's, trim.
2: Yeah, that's the you know kind of the premium trim level. Yeah, and this one was about twenty-five thousand uh, dollars, which isn't bad. You know, I mean, it's competitive yeah. with the class. Uh, but you know, I would I would expect a little more in the SEL. Um, but you know, it did have lots of other features. You know, it had uh, adaptive cruise control and and lane keeping and that sort of thing. You know, so it had had all the, the usual driver assist features and active safety stuff. So that was good. You know, the the electronics were good. You know, the the infotainment system, uh, like I said, was responsive and easy to use. Um, so I mean, the the seats were kind of the only you know real complaint that I had about it.
1: Well, so I have a couple of things that I just wonder about with um, the Jetta, and, and you may even know the answer. Is this North America only now that they're selling that that particular car, or is it a global car?
2: Uh, I think they do sell it in some other markets. I don't think I don't think it's available. I mean, it was never the Jetta was never a big seller in Europe anyway. Yeah, because
1: um, yeah, they're smarter. They like wagons and hatchbacks.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so it was. You know, they they sold them. You know, at various times. In fact, there were even various times. You know, when uh, Jetta's, you know, Jetta sedans were not available in in Europe. But um, they let's see, yeah, no, it's not currently available. At least not in the UK. I'm looking at the VW UK website. They sell the the Passat and the Arteon in uh, in the UK. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's available in in uh, in Europe right now. Uh, but it is available in some other markets. available in Latin America and and some other places. Uh, but the North America is the primary market for the Jetta.
1: Yeah. So that's uh, that's an interesting sort of thought I had about you know, how they've managed to you know, make you feel like you've got a driver's cockpit, right? Well, they they make one dashboard now, and I'm presuming it's, this is a left-hand drive only uh, configuration. It would because I think part of the reason for the flat dash of the earlier Jettas and golfs like the one you had was that they could use the same basic dash structure and a lot of the same pieces without having to flip it for left hand uh left hand drive or right hand drive.
2: Uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a know. good point. Um you know it, it does make it a lot easier to do that um you know when you've got some degree of symmetry to the dashboard.
1: Um, but maybe that's not correct. I don't know. Somebody will probably correct us. Uh, anyway. Um, and the, you know, the, the, going back to that earlier Jetta too, the, the one that this current car replaces, I, I understand the, the enthusiast and especially the Volkswagen enthusiast complaint about how they felt really cheap and the materials like to the touch. Yes, but they, they did look good. Uh, you know, and the, that was sort of the right Jetta for the time, as much as I hate to admit it, right? They took some content out in terms of squishy materials and uh, that, that beam rear axle. But they didn't really, I don't think they, they hurt the performance of the car in the market in terms of sales. I, I think it actually sold pretty well for them because it was priced very well and it was slightly bigger than some of its competition. You know, you got more car for your dollar. Uh, in the places where it mattered, you know, it had a larger trunk, it had a larger back seat uh, compared to something like a Corolla. Um, on the other hand, it's nice that they're putting some of that classic VW back into it because, uh, you know, the, the outgoing Jetta it it drove pretty well. It, it just had some some discipline that again, like something like a Corolla didn't. Um, it didn't quite. It maybe held up next to a Focus, but a Focus was a, a great competitor for the jetta
2: yeah you know and it's not that the the previous jetta was a terrible car uh it's more that you know relative to what people had come to expect of the jetta and vw's in general in terms of their driving dynamics and the the feel of the interior um you know it 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 came across as a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people so it was you know, it, it fell short of of the benchmark that VW had set for itself in prior generations.
1: Yeah, I'll buy that. that that's fine. I think the the Passat did that too when they went to a, the American only Passat. You know, the, it got larger. Yes, uh, they they sort of did the same thing. Um, but again, you know, delivered. I think it delivered a car that sells well and and can be priced well. And so, who cares what enthusiasts have to say? <laughs> uh so yeah I'm also, also just, turned... uh, just
2: checking uh some nope. specs and they they did have they actually did have the 1.4 liter turbo in the later years of the previous generation jetta as well as the 1.8 liter turbo and a 2 liter uh turbo in the gli model uh was that 1.4
1: liter turbo that was just it was just the engine it wasn't again with the hybrid like i thought it might have been Or um
2: i've got to go back a little bit farther here Uh Go ahead and talk, and I'll 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 look oh. back. I'll think back into uh, the specs here, the older, the older generation specs.
1: Dan, start babbling. Yeah. Uh, I I mean I'm I'm driving a well you're a golf good at that. Wagon. So, the, yeah, I'm terribly excellent at it. <laughs> um, driving a golf sport wagon this week, and you know it really makes me embrace my uh 40 year old dad kind of uh side of my personality. It, it just re- it really reminds me of the, the escort wagons we had. Oh, uh, those, those were the days. We had, we, yeah, we had two of them, and it was like the second one we had was a, it was a manual transmission. It it didn't have a ton of equipment, and you know this is the same thing. It's about a, It's a compact wagon. It's a you know low twenties price wise. I think this one's twenty two or twenty three. Uh, has pretty much all the features you're really going to want, uh, and it it drives again like we were talking about. It has that sort of Volkswagen discipline. I, I wouldn't call it really sporty, but it's not sloppy. And you know, it's it's just it's nice to have something with that kind of utility that is a car. You know, it's an easy step in and out. It handles well. It rides well. You're not in this giant sort of hunk of metal. Um, It has plenty of cargo space. We even took it to get the Christmas tree because it has integrated roof rails, which is nice. And you know, I mean, we
2: we did that same sort of thing with with our Jetta for years. You know, it had the you know the roof the roof rails built in. um, You know, and it, it was it was the perfect size for that sort of thing.
1: It's a fantastic car in terms of just being a, a sensible, you know, wagon, uh, and it gets excellent fuel economy. I think this has the one point eight turbo, uh, which is in this application it's a little underwhelming, just given what we know about what it's capable of. But it's it's also it's fine. Uh, it's nice that it has a manual transmission, although it's only a five speed, which. I was surprised about it. <laughs> I, I, the first time I, I drove it, it was at night, so I went to shift into sixth. I was like, "Oh, there is no sixth. <laughs> that would be reverse." <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's a car that I, I I always give advice to people who consider Volkswagens. Like, you be careful. You you may not want to own a Volkswagen.
2: Well, and uh, and th- I mean that's always the thing that I've said over the years as well is that they're great cars to drive. Maybe not so great to own, you know, based on my own experience, you know, having owned two of them, you know, over the course of, you know, almost 16 years. Uh, but, you know, as of last year, they also have a six year, 72,000 mile bumper to bumper warranty. So I would, I would, you know, I would, I would say, you know, there's, no, there's probably nothing wrong with owning one now, you know, because you know that. You know, at least for those six years, you know they're they're going to take care of you.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's goes part and parcel too with the the way this one is equipped. You know, it's it's not the most luxurious, so it has those split seats where the backrest is power and the the uh, bottom cushion, you know, the fore aft is is a manual adjustment. They're not great, they're okay, uh, but it doesn't have a sunroof or a big panoramic roof or anything, which is a, a, another thing to break
2: um trust me i know about that
1: right i know it's it's a common thing in the jettas but I'd also like i i just found that i like having the sort of the skylight but i don't like having all the mechanism especially when it fails and it's expensive to fix or you have to fix it yourself which is no fun Uh, it's a you know it's just like the basic car has that kind of uh charm to it and it's it's just a good, solid wagon that has a lot of space. You know, I could get the dog in the back and, you know, close the gate on him and he's not like cramped, like he would be in the smaller hatch. You know, it's, just, it's nice to have a car this size with this kind of utility with a manual. It's not sporty, but it's also enjoyable to drive because you're actively driving there's something else to do than just sort of sit there and listen to podcasts or, or whatever you do um, when you're not shifting for yourself. Um, and yeah, you know, like you said, like the, the Volkswagen infotainment is is fine. I, I like that it's it's not trying to do so many things. So I would break my rule and and say equipped this way, I can't see a problem with it. It, it. it doesn't have enough stuff on it that's really gonna just explode. Which is part of the problem with the European luxury cars, um, where you step up a level, you know, where we had been in Volvos and BMWs and Mercedes and stuff like that in that realm, there's just more stuff and the more potential failures. And that's, that's kind of what bites you. This is a solid enough car and it sells in however many markets around the world that I think they need to make it so that it's at least serviceable, if not reliable.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, and you gotta, you gotta imagine that, you know, if VW is going to go to the extent of offering a six year bumper to bumper warranty, that they have hopefully addressed some of those, you know, some of those things that, had a tendency to break, you know, on prior generations of VWs that caused a lot of havoc. And, and, you know, we're frankly very, you know, could be very expensive to fix for even relatively minor things. Um, so, you know, I, I think that I, I would not hesitate at this point to recommend, you know, at least some VW models, um, because I, you know, I, I think that they are really, you know, tend to be really good to drive. And, uh, when you, you know, especially for a wagon, you know, I think, you know, the, the, a vehicle the size of the golf wagon, uh, you know, the, the great thing about it is it's got the, the driving dynamics of a car, you know, with that extra utility. You know, that is even more so than what you're typically going to get out of, uh, out of a, a similarly sized crossover because, you know, the cro- crossovers tend to, they tend to not actually be packaged as well as a car like this. And so you, you have more space in the back for stuff. You know, if you've got young kids, these are actually really great, you know, for for putting all the, you know, when you've got to go on a road trip, you know, to visit the grandparents or something, or, you know, uh, go on a vacation, you've got a lot of room in the back there to, to put stuff and, you know, store all the things that you have to take with you when you have a couple of kids.
1: Yeah. It's a really, in terms of Using it, it's a really well thought out wagon. There's big storage cubbies. There's big storage cubbies in the doors. That, it's comfortable. It's easy to get in and out of. Like you said, for kids, that's the thing with crossovers. I think that those tend to be very popular because they're a little taller, and so the people with buying power, uh, they they're in this place in their life where they want a vehicle that's less of a step down to get into, and that's that's valid. Um, and Volkswagen offers that, so. Uh, did you find out anything about the uh, yeah, the so the, Jetta the, the, the,
2: the hybrid did have the 1.4 liter turbo? Um, and uh, and they did actually offer the 1.4 turbo in the later years of the previous generation sedan as well, the, the regular 1.4 huh. turbo. Um, it wasn't there at the beginning, but it was there later on. Um, at the time, you know, back in 2010 2009, when we had bought ours, um, you know, they had three engine options, they had the uh, the Older uh, two-liter turbo, the the two-point-five-liter five-cylinder, and the, uh, oh, the diesel, right. of course. And I it, I it, drove yeah, one with awesome. the two-point-five. I
1: hated the two-point-five.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean you know the two-point-five had decent performance, uh, but it was not a very refined engine. It was kind of noisy and kind of kind of rough. You know it had, you know it had plenty of power, but you know that was about all it had to offer, and it didn't have particularly good fuel economy either. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so I, we've loved on Volkswagen enough. Let's move on to the, the Acura RDX. Okay, I, that's let's, the other let's car. love that I one.
2: I, I, I certainly uh, loved the RDX when I drove it.
1: Did, did you like it? Yeah, I, I liked I, it a lot. What did you like about it? What was your favorite thing about it?
2: I, I like that it kind of, you know, the, the, the second generation RDX, I was not particularly a fan of. Yeah, you because know, the, the original, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, was one of the, the first of these, you know, kind of compact premium crossovers that really had a, a sporty feel to it. It was, you know, it was one of, it was Honda's first vehicle with a turbocharged engine, and it was, you know, it also had the, the super handling all wheel drive with their torque vectoring system, and it was a lot of fun to drive. Um, and you know, the second generation went kind of more mainstream, and you know, kind of lost a lot of that uh, that feel and for this one you know especially in a spec form uh you know it it kind of went back you know more towards the original you know it has the two liter turbo basically a detuned version of the engine in the type r you know 272 horsepower i think or 275 um you know and it's got plenty of power and torque the 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 torque vectoring all-wheel drive system is back you know which makes it great for going around corners um, yeah, you know, I pretty much liked everything about it.
1: Yeah, I can see that in terms of driving, it's fantastic. I they really do the car stuff uh, quite well. The turbo engine is strong. It works really smoothly with the transmission. A spec the way they tune the a specs is magic. They just feel really good. Uh, they rotate really readily, especially for a front drive chassis. Um, I think part of that is the, with the a specs they they overdrive that rear axle, um, so it does. It's it's just it they're really really pleasing to drive. You know they they ride well. The structure's solid. The steering is really weighted nicely. Everything you touch feels good. Um, you know I, I I'm on record as liking Acuras vehicles, and if they keep putting A specs in the fleet, it's hard not to like them. Because <laughs> that's kind of the top of their trim level, and they are they're really nicely appointed. Um, my favorite thing about the RDX uh, is the, the audio system. The uh, The ELS surround system is, is fantastic. And they sent it. They're really proud of it. They sent it with a little iPod Nano uh, full of songs that
2: were ripped from. Where'd they dig one of those um, up from?
1: CD. I, don't, I don't know. It had a little screen on it, right? <laughs> and I think it's called the Nano still, right? Uh, I don't, but I don't it, it think Apple it,
2: even makes those anymore.
1: They may not. Um, but it was uncompressed audio, so you really get a real good impression of what this this audio system can do. And it, it, uh, me personally, I'm very attuned to this, just that kind of thing because it's part of my my profession. And I've spent a long time listening to lots of speakers. I used to build speakers back in the day, and just it's something I'm very passionate about and have quite a bit of experience with. So most car systems suck, especially <laughs> the ones you pay a lot for. They're actually not really that good. Usually they have lots of, lots of treble, lots of high-end and and a very impressive bass and all the mid-range is scooped out. and They just, a lot of them just don't sound good and they cost a lot. Uh, this system is different than that. It actually sounds really, really good. It's really well balanced. Uh, and they, Acura hooked me up with an interview with Elliot Shiner and the folks from Panasonic who actually build the hardware and they work together. I'm finishing up putting that together. Cause that's actually really interesting. If you want to geek out hard about it, it's that's coming. Um, but the, the just sitting in it and listening to the audio was probably my favorite thing. You just put it on adaptive cruise, <laughs> just like sit in traffic. It made it really enjoyable. So, you know, if you're going to be stuck in traffic anyway, that's that's something that can make it nice is is some of the options. Um what I didn't really like about it was the new uh what is it? The advanced cockpit or what, is that what they call it? The control scheme for the infotainment?
2: The uh um, absolute pre- touch cockpit. The pre- yeah, yeah, precision touchpad. Precision cockpit, yeah.
1: I, I mean I like the idea. I see what they're going for and it works well most of the time, but I th- it felt to me like it's running on slow hardware so sometimes it would get confused about what i was asking for so by the time i clicked the thing it had switched to something next to it which was like no i don't want that uh and i I found that just functionally um for example there's no way to zoom the map in nav that I could find. And I actually went to some forums online for RDX owners and and (laughs) they're saying the same thing. It's like, you can zoom the map in explore mode, but explore mode won't actually update the map with your position. And then when you go back to just the regular map, it defaults to a default zoom level. And I couldn't figure that out. And that may be operator error. So if it is, I don't want to say that you can't do it. I just want to say it's not intuitive to figure out. And so that should probably change. Uh, and the. Like tuning, um, like scanning through uh, satellite radio, also kind of crappy. So like some of that stuff is is like you're 90 percent of the way there. It's a really interesting control scheme. And I think it does work really well. Uh, it's got haptic feedback on the touchpad. And, and when you think of it as the whole screen, instead of like a. a it takes a little while to stop trying to treat it like a trackpad, uh, but once you get past that, it, you do become really quick with it, and it becomes a lot more intuitive. So I, I like it. I just I think that it has some some ways to go in terms of updates and, and performance, and then it will be better. Uh, what did you think of it when you tried it out?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely takes some getting used to. It it it, it works a little differently from you know the other controllers that we have in other cars, especially the touchpads you know and it works differently from you know the touchpad that you're probably used to using on your on your computer because th- you know those are all relative controllers you know so you know regard you know on, on your computer for example you know wherever your cursor might be on the screen you know if you touch the center of the touchpad and move one way or the other it's going to move from that position um, whereas you know when you touch you know when you when you tap this touchpad in the in the RDX wherever you tap on the touchpad, it's going to go to that corresponding spot on the screen. So if you tap, you know, the upper left corner, the cursor is going to appear over in that corner. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like a you know, a remote version of hitting the touch screen, but because it's down on the console, you know, beside you, you can have a little more precision in the control as opposed to reaching out to tap on a touch screen. Um, so you know i i personally liked it once i got used to how it works um, i you know i didn't notice as many of the 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 quibbles you know that you mentioned as far as the responsiveness because i mostly just used it with android auto and didn't have any issues right. with that um you know i i played around with it a little bit with the with the stock nav i guess i didn't i don't remember you know trying to zoom in on the nav screen you know so i i can't comment on that but um you know the, the basic premise I like, and I, I think we'll see more refinement of that. And, you know, we'll probably see some, I know we're, there's going to be some additional software updates to that system uh, that get pushed out, uh, you know, over the coming months. Uh, you know, for example, when they, when they launched the RDX um, back, you know, early summer um, at that point, it did not yet have uh, Apple CarPlay support. It only had support for Android auto because CarPlay, uh, you know, the, the way both of those systems, Android Auto and CarPlay work is they're they essentially act like driver layers, you know, to to translate whatever control scheme the car has into something that your phone can understand to control, control the apps through that interface. And, you know, so it was designed for either touch screens or the kind of rotary knob, you know, relative controllers that we've had up until now. And it didn't, Carplay didn't yet have support for this type of absolute touchpad uh, that the RDX has. and so they were still working on that and at some point in the hopefully in the next few months um, they should have an update for that 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 allows it to work with carplay. Um, but you know and we'll'll we'll, we'll see certainly see other updates you know uh, as they as they move along and, and also add this to other new Acura models going forward.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the other things I picked up was that it's not quite as smooth with uh, CarPlay or uh, Android Auto as it could be. Um, and it, it sounds like this is a new system. It's probably a, a, a new architecture behind the scenes for them as well. And so there's going to have to be some some updates uh, to smooth it out. But overall, I really like the, the paradigm. Um, I, I think that it is quick to use, especially for, for most of the things that you are using on a regular basis. I like how some of the stuff is duplicated there's a steering wheel, um, button that will actually allow you to select certain features in the, the gauge cluster, the center screen of the gauge cluster. So, you know, there's more than one way to put info into it and get what you want. And, you know, I think all of those things require refinement. So it's, it's a better effort than they had. And, you, yeah,
2: it's certainly the, better than the old things. dual screen setup that they had.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, so I, you know, I can't, I can't knock it, other than to say, you know, it. I think there's there's room for improvement. Um, it's a big step up from from what it had been, and you know, the the rest of the car really quite makes up for it. That that. Turbo engine is great. It's it's a growly little you know strong engine. It's it's a nice handling you know underneath it all is a CRV I think so it's like it's the best CRV ever and that, that's,
2: yeah well I mean it's it's got it's, there's CRV components in there but there's also you know a bunch of stuff that is unique to the RDX like um, you know the the uh, the torque vectoring all wheel drive system is only inaccurate yeah that's it's not it's not in right. any Honda brand models.
1: Right, and though, but those are the things that make it uh, worthwhile. I mean, that's that's where the magic is. Like I said, the A spec magic. That's the way they tune it. The way it drives. That's what I want in a car, and that's really. And we look at the price too. It's like I think it's just mid forties. So yeah, it's a premium. Yeah, price, it's it's, really it's actually a really good expensive. value. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah and this is something that, you know when I when I drove the. Um, the Cadillac XT4 a couple of months ago, you know, that I commented on at that time was, you know, the the RDX spec, you know, I think the one I had was about forty six or forty seven thousand dollars, and you know, it was uh, comparably or or better equipped than the XT4 I drove, which was at least ten thousand dollars more, you know, and you know, so you know, it's it's kind of it's that's a you know that that's really impressive, you know when you when you compare everything that's on there you know like the rdx comes standard with things like that panoramic sunroof um uh, you know and you know the all-wheel drive system or uh yeah all-wheel drive is standard uh, at least on the ace spec. i think it's standard across the board on the rdx but i have to go back and double check um yeah you know, and that two liter turbo is a, is a fabulous engine yeah
1: i, I again fix the infotainment a little more and i will continue to sing its praises because I, I think it's fantastic. Um, so let's move on a All little right. bit. Uh, right before – we mentioned Thanksgiving. Right before Thanksgiving, uh, Ram came up to New England, and they they unveiled a car, which never happens. So they unveiled a truck, actually, uh, with the New England uh, motor press. Um, it's, it's the Ram North edition, but it's not only for New England. It's for, uh, I think, the whole northern part of the country. Uh, it, anywhere it gets snow. So from – from Boston to, um, you know, Olympia or even further, <laughs> but it's, it's based on the big, big horn. Um, then so you can get it with the the 3.6 or the Hemi. It's a, it's a nice truck. It's all monochrome. It's got a one inch lift. They had white letter tires that have the, the three mountain symbol on them. So they're actually like snow tires. Cause if you've ever had a truck in the snow with not snow tires, it becomes a projectile. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just I, I think that's that's cool. Ram continues to uh to churn out the special editions of everything. You know, they're doing the same thing that Dodge did uh with the the Charger and Challenger. Like they, they just continue to make new stuff out of those cars. <laughs> um but, and the, the new Ram is is all redone anyway. So it's it's nice to see them paying attention to the folks that get snow and uh it it looks great with the white letter tires and the lift and you know, it's comfy because it's a Ram. It's a nice, cushy inside. Uh, so I want to just say thanks for bringing it up. Continue to make uh, make new stuff for all of us truck lovers. I'd love to see a Snow Commander with the, <laughs> the old style uh, graphics, like the old, um, uh, I guess it was like the late 70s. But they had these, you know, because in the late 70s, there was no performance, but there were stickers.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Lots of stickers. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll have more, you know what, I'll, I'll write up a post about that. Cause I think it's, it's interesting enough, but the Ram North edition is a new thing and they unveiled it with us in new England. So I feel very special about <laughs> that. Uh, but we also talked about how bad Carlos Ghosn's Thanksgiving was. He probably doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving, but, um, he's. Probably not a happy guy right now. I don't know what's going on though. He, is he forced out, or did he like actually commit crimes? Is this a coup, or what's going on with Renault Nissan?
2: Well, he's he's been arrested in Japan. <clears throat> excuse me, um, and he's currently in custody there in uh, in solitary confinement uh, in a in a jail in Tokyo, the the same jail where they were um, holding the uh, the folks from that uh, Japanese cult that committed the. The attack in the in the Tokyo subway back in the oh wow yeah back in the late nineties yeah Um, Yeah. you know and you know death row inmates there so he's he's in the same uh, same cell block with those guys which uh, you know (laughs) doesn't sound like a a real fun time Um, but he's been accused of he and uh, another uh, executive reformer Nissan executive Greg Kelly been accused of uh, a variety of financial misdeeds, you know, including, uh, understating their, you know, compensation, um, and potentially also some misappropriation of company funds for personal use, um, you know, charge, you know, charging some things, you know, for some personal expenses to to the company. Um, so, you know, right now, you know, the, the Japanese, uh, authorities, you know, are still, uh, putting together their case and, uh, we'll see what happens with that but you know back at back at headquarters you know or actually the you know the multiple headquarters because Nissan is part of the Renault Nissan alliance you know which was formed in the, the late 90s or early 2000s you know the the way that Carlos Gone ended up you know with Nissan was he was he worked for Renault and in the late 90s you know Nissan was on the verge of bankruptcy themselves and, you know, Renault stepped in to to help, you know, they made a big investment in Nissan um, and they sent um, Gone over to, I think initially he was like a chief operating officer or president um, and eventually became CEO and, and chairman of Nissan. You know, basically they sent him in to, to turn the company around and, you know, he did a lot of good things for, for Nissan, you know, in terms of getting them back on track and, you know, he was really the, the one, he was the driving force that pushed Nissan towards electrification, uh, you know, to introduce the LEAF and, and other EVs that they have in other markets. Uh, you know, and then, you know, over time, uh, Nissan and, and Renault, you know, both made cross investments in each other and they, they formed, officially formed this alliance. So they didn't, they didn't formally merge, uh, but they have this alliance. And, but there's, there's some strain in that alliance because especially in Japan you know the the folks at Nissan are not crazy about the way the thing is structured because Renault owns 43% of Nissan's shares Um, Nissan only owns 15% of Renault and uh, Renault uh, has voting control over Nissan but that does not go the other way around so Renault has you know they get to appoint three members of Nissan's board of directors Including the chairman, who was going, going, stepped down about a year and a half ago as um, a CEO, handed over the reins um, to, I uh, can't think of his name right now. Uh, let see, to um, uh, Hir- um, Hiroto Sekawa, um who's the currently the, the Nissan CEO. Uh, and going, you know, going to remain CEO of, Renault and also chairman of the alliance, which is kind of this overarching body over the two, um, and Nissan, you know, wanted to take a bigger stake in Renault and you know have more more influence over what Renault does. Um, but you know there there were issues with that because uh, the French government also owns uh, about a fifteen percent fifteen percent stake of Renault as well, which made it hard for a foreign company to take. You know uh, voting control gone wanted to actually formally merge Renault and Nissan as well as Mitsubishi um, and was working towards that but you know, you know they had to work through these other issues with the French government's uh, stake in, in Renault it's all very complicated um, and now you know it looks like um, Nissan you know basically wants to rest back more of the control that Renault has had over their their management over the last 15 years and you know, have a little more independence from Renault. Um, so you know, it's, we'll see what happens. But it's it's going to be going to be very messy for a while there. It's kind kind of like Brexit.
1: <laughs> well, it's hard to get really a straight story out of the situation. You know, on the one hand, it seemed like there was under underreporting of compensation, and then on the other hand, it. Sounds like there was that internal tension. Something was going on, and then people didn't agree, so they just, you know, set off a bomb. It's on the outside looking in. It's it's just a really strange situation. And on the other hand, you know, Carlos Ghosn has been pretty instrumental in making sure that Nissan is doing well. And right now, I think they're actually driving. That whole Renault Nissan alliance, I think, that well, yeah, and that's that's, that's part Nissan of what's side. causing
2: this tension. You know, uh, Nissan, you know, sells about twice as many vehicles globally as Renault does. Uh, they sell you know a little more than six million vehicles globally. Renault is about about three million, uh, and then there's about a million or so from Mitsubishi, which you know uh, the, the alliance also took uh, controlling stake in last year. So it's actually the Renault Nissan Mitsubishi alliance. And once they brought in Mitsubishi, you know, it brought overall sales from the Alliance, you know, up on a par with Volkswagen, you know, making them the largest automaker tech, you know, automaker in air quotes there, because it's still three, technically three separate companies, uh, but, you know, made them, you know, on a par with, uh, with VW sales, you know, about around ten and a half million last year globally. And uh, one of the, you know, but because, you know, Nissan is such a much bigger part in terms of revenues and sales, and yet they don't have any control over Renault, that's kind of what has driven some of this tension, and, and Renault has so much control over Nissan. Um, and, and another thing that has irked a lot of people in Japan, of late you know, earlier this year or late last year, you know, there was this uh, scandal with, uh, around, you know, final inspections on Nissan vehicles. You know, there were some, some things that went on there, you know, proper, you know, Final inspections weren't being done correctly. Uh, there were some quality issues, and um, while all this was going on, you know, Goen was off. You know, he, he didn't say anything to defend Nissan or, or to help out Nissan during that period, which which irritated a lot of people in Japan. Uh, so there, there's a lot of angst here, you know, within this within this uh, so-called alliance
1: yeah and there's apparently there's talk about
2: daimler (laughs) yeah (laughs) well you know daimler you know they have the the alliance has a partnership with with daimler um where that
1: makes sense because there's there are mercedes versions of that infinity right or there's infinity versions of that
2: mercedes yeah the infinity qx30 is uh basically a rebodied version of the mercedes gla um they also um have some have a uh some joint ventures, uh, with powertrains. Um, and you know, Nissan is building engines that are, uh, used for some uh, Mercedes vehicles built in Mexico. Um, you know, and there, you know, so there's a, and then they were using some uh, Mercedes diesels and some Nissan vehicles in Europe. Uh, so there, there's a bunch of collaboration that's been going on for the last few years between the two companies. And I can't remember exactly how big, um, Daimler, you know, Daimler bought I think about three percent or something of, of oh, the two Yeah, companies. I think you're right. Um, so, you know, there there's some thoughts that perhaps you know Daimler might step in, you know, to basically bring them all together and and kind of help, try to force through a merger or or something, uh, you know, to to resolve the, the issues between the two. Uh, you know, the you know, other things that have gone on, you know, in the past week uh, since Goon's arrest. Um, on Thursday, this past Thursday, um, the uh, Nissan board met and formally re- uh, removed Ghosn as chairman of Nissan. He's still a director, but he's no longer chairman of the board. Um, and at Renault, uh, the Renault board met last week. And um, while they haven't fired him, they have they did uh, make the COO, Terry Ballor, uh, uh, they, they basically gave him all the authority to be acting CEO uh, and chairman uh, while this is all getting resolved.
1: I, I'm assuming that all across all of these companies and countries, shareholders are mad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it sounds like it, for us in the public, it just came out of nowhere. And uh, I hope it didn't. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I guess it's worse actually if it didn't come out of nowhere uh, for the shareholders. But yeah, it, this doesn't seem like something that's going to get really cleaned up all that soon. But the sort of two competing ends of it, right, are uh, maintaining and sustaining the alliance and fixing whatever's broken there, and then whatever happens to Carlos Ghosn. That those seem like two separate issues, and they. They may not care about Carlos <laughs> as much as they care about their businesses.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Gone was sixty-four, you know, and you know, most, I think most people were expecting him to retire in the next couple of years anyway. Um, but you know, there's still, you know, even even if he were to retire and, and walk away from this uh, or get fired, there's still a lot of other issues between Renault and Nissan that you know have been festering for some time. So you know, it's no it's no surprise that. Um, you know about what's going on, and and there's some speculation that Nissan may have been the ones to uh, basically to give the information to Japanese prosecutors that was needed to arrest uh, Gon while he was in the country. Um, so who who knows what's really going on? It's probably going to be a while before yeah. we find out. Well, that's the car
1: business in a nutshell. I think is uh, pretty much from anybody's perspective, it's it's kind of like hey, who knows interesting stuff will continue to happen that's why it's
2: interesting that's right
1: yeah um, I don't think it's going to have any impact on products in the short to midterm
2: yeah uh, you know they're they're already doing a lot of component sharing a lot of platform sharing um, across the two brands and there's there's going to be more coming you know in the next couple of years as they further integrate Mitsubishi you know and shift uh, re, uh, revamped Mitsubishi products over to common platforms with Renault and Nissan. Uh, you know, and I think from a from a product development standpoint, you know, component sharing and, and keeping costs down. You know, the overall the alliance I think, has probably been good for for both companies. Um, you know, because it allowed them to get a lot more scale. You know, so you know, you've got common common platforms used across vehicles from from both of the companies and, and engines and everything, but um i think there's just a lot of a lot of angst you know over who has who really has control yeah
1: yeah And well, I think Mitsubishi must just feel like the like the absolute loser here. <laughs> like what the hell guys we just got into this thing and now this is going on you know and they they really need i think new product in their pipeline because they have a bunch of old stuff like really old stuff and so they could benefit the most from getting those Nissan and Renault shared platforms and technology and boosting their lineup. So I don't know. I'm I'm sure that everybody at Mitsubishi is really once again on edge.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: All right. right. Next up. Winter. Winter. We got a taste of winter. I don't know if you guys got it.
2: Yeah, we got it here. And it it snowed here several times over the past week and a half. Um, You know, never, never a big accumulation. I think the most we had, you know, was about an inch. Uh, but it was cold oh. and it was below freezing um and and that means uh you know you got to think about tires
1: yeah winter tires uh we were supposed to get like a small storm like like you said like a couple 3 inches or whatever we got like eight <laughs> <laughs> and then we got another storm so that's like just a for, for you guys yeah i mean it was it's no big Flurries. deal but you you have it's to a, be a prepared so
2: the Massachusetts flurry
1: right um i was kind of like uh the night before and we had a busy just time. Cause I, you know, uh, life is difficult. Uh, so it was like nine 30 the night before it's supposed to snow and it's like supposed to blow in at the, you know, after work at like seven o'clock, I was like, no, I'm going to put the snow tires on or the winter tires on the Jeep because they're not just snow tires, they're winter tires. Uh, and so, you know, I was like, it shouldn't take me that long. It took a couple of hours just to get it done. Uh, and I was super glad that I did that because the next day <laughs> we got a ton of snow. Um, and that's that's the thing is uh, winter tires are crucially important no matter what you drive. Uh, I've I've been a huge believer in this. You put a link in the um, the topics list here to a, a Jalopnik post. Apparently, there's people that still don't understand this, that you need to equip your car for the conditions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it, it's, it's important. The, the important thing is to you know make the, uh, you know, the, the way, the way you call them is winter tires, not just snow tires, because it's not just about grip and snow, even when it's cold, you know, the tire compounds, you know, are really affected. You know, the rubber is really affected by the ambient temperature and the temperature of the road. Um, you know, summer tires, you know, Summer, summer performance tires, or or just summer tires in general, are formulated to be good down to about forty degrees Fahrenheit. And once they get, once the temperatures drop below about forty degrees, what happens is the rubber gets hard. And you know, in order for tires to work and get a grip on the road, they, the rubber has to be pliable. You know, that's that's how tires work. That's how that's how you actually get traction. Is there has to be some pliability to that rubber so it can actually grip the road. And once summer tires get below 40 degrees, they lose a lot of that pliability and they become hard as rocks. And that's why even when there's no snow on the ground, even if the road is dry, if it's 30 degrees or 25 degrees, you're still going to have you're going to lose a lot of traction. And this is something that I know I've seen some some postings online from uh, Tesla customers that bought, you know, Model 3s with their performance package, uh, you know, which comes with summer tires complaining that you know, as soon as it got cold, you know that they they had to get some snow tires or winter tires and put them on there. Well, you know, when you buy winter tires, no matter what kind of car it's or summer tires, no matter what kind of car it's on, this is a fact of life. You have to put on winter tires, and even all even so called all season tires, while they're they're formulated to work better at cold temperatures, um, they're still not as good as a proper winter tire. You know, a winter tire is formulated to stay pliable, you know, down to well below zero and give you decent traction, even, you know, regardless of whether it's a dry pavement or snow covered or ice, um, you know. And then in addition to that, the, the tread design itself, you know, is also, you know, you, you have – you look at the, the tread, you'll see these narrow uh, grooves that are cut into the, the tread blocks, and they call them sipes, and that helps to um, – helps the tire to, uh, to flex and, and be able to actually grip um, on whatever kind of surface you have so you get better traction. And, you know, it makes a huge difference in both your stopping ability and your ability to turn, uh, you know, which, you know, in, in the wintertime, you know, when people lose control, you want to have steering control just as much as you want uh, braking control. So it, it's crucial to have you know to, to use the proper kinds of tires for the conditions you drive in. If you live in northern climates, you know even if you don't get a lot of snow, it's a good idea to to put on winter tires and the you know when or some you know, winter tires um, when the temperatures drop. You know and you know getting an extra set of wheels for most cars is not that expensive. You know the the the, the easiest way to you know to to do this if you're going to go back and forth between either all season or summer tires and winter tires just buy a second set of wheels and have the tires mounted and, you know, around Thanksgiving time around this time of year, take off the winter, the summer tires, put on the winter tires. Um, and then, you know, around, you know, March or so, or depending on where you live might be a little later or a little earlier, you know, put the summer tires back on and, and you'll have the best traction no matter what the conditions are and you'll be safer.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we do. And you get uh, life out of both sets of, tires that way too. They, they last quite a while. Um, and the, you know, having the separate wheels makes it easy to swap at home. Um, you know, the point of that Jalopnik post was they were actually, there was a video that they posted, uh, about, and that's sort of what what drove the post over there. And it's just basically illustrates that, you know, all wheel drive on all season tires versus front wheel drive with winter tires. The front wheel drive is going to slay it. Um, it's just going to be able to, Go, stop, turn, do all of those things that you need to do in a much more controllable fashion uh, versus all-wheel drive, which gives you that false sense of security. I find with all-wheel drive, it's easy to get going way too fast. Oh, yeah. And then you are a projectile. You have no ability to stop or to turn or to just do anything. So you're just along for the ride at that
2: point. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, 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 and the, the reality is no matter how many wheels you have doing the driving, you know, putting down tractive force, ultimately it all comes down to those four little patches, you know, about the size of your the palm of your hand or less, you know, where the tire is actually in contact with the road. You know, you get two tons of steel and glass and plastic that, you know, is is in contact through these four little these four little patches that are touching the road. And if those four patches aren't getting good traction, it doesn't matter how many wheels are driven. You're you're still not going to have good control.
1: Right. And it is. It's all about uh, control. And so what I look for just to to give the unwashed masses a tip is I look for uh, the studless snows tires with the three mountains on them. The little symbol on the sidewall, which means that they can handle severe winter service. So, you know, that they'll be good in, in ice and slush and snow. Uh, and the studless ones uh, are like Blizzaks. Or there's a lot now. Um, Cooper, if you wanted to keep your your tire companies only in North America and support American jobs, there's two companies you can pick. That's Goodyear and Cooper. Uh, other brands are really good though. There's Michelin's. There's uh, like I said, Bridgestone and, and, um, oh, Mich- and Michelin and makes-
2: Conti both make tires in North America as well. Um, oh, do they? Yeah. Yeah. They both have manufacturing. Uh, maybe
1: it's, maybe it's the differences like the the corporate ownership, the parent company. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: I mean, I I've forget. had, I've no. had good success with, uh, with uh, Michelin's and Pirelli's uh, and Conti's. Um, I don't, I think it, I haven't used Goodyears on any of my personal vehicles, but I've used them in my in my past life as an engineer. Uh, I've used Goodyear uh, winter tires uh, and you know some of the other brands as well. And you know, gen- generally, you know, any good brand name tire, you know, it's you know that's a, a winter tire. You know, the way you described is is going to have a huge advantage in uh, in traction when the temperatures drop.
1: Yeah, and they're actually not even that bad when it's dry. That's the other thing. They're not scary. They're a little softer, a little bit more pliable. And they, do, they don't they do wear at all. The studless ones don't wear at all when it's wet or snowy uh, because the the precipitation lubricates the tread. And they do they do wear quickly when it's not, you know, when you're running them dry. But there's enough of a margin built in there. I've get, I get like five years out of the sets, and they still work. Yeah. Uh, even in that last year, you know. Uh, so... It's not like snow tires of the old days that are like these tall, scary, <laughs> scary things that ish. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, no, yeah. No, you know, modern, modern winter tires are, you know, really good. You know, you'll get you'll get good handling and, and ride quality and uh, uh, and and much you'll be much, much safer.
1: Yeah. Because we want all of our listeners to continue to survive, to so they can keep to listening. us and to send in questions. Exactly. Right, exactly. Uh, all right. I th- I think we're, are we done with the spiel? Like, yeah. Um, all right. Done with that. Done. Okay. Uh, the next thing, uh, we have on our list is the, uh, the 2020 Land Rover evoke. Uh, Mike, biggest question is the evoke is, is this like, this isn't like all new, right? It's just, they're adding a hybrid to it.
2: Um, no, It it's actually, it's actually new. Um, is it, it new, new? It. Yeah. Um, huh. you know, it, the the design is evolutionary from the first generation Evoque, which was a really nice design. It was a good looking vehicle. It was, um, yeah, And you know, this one, you know, is is an evolution of that. Um, you know, it's adopted some of the uh, some picked up some of the uh, features from the uh, the Velar uh, that we've previously talked about. So you now have yeah. flush mounted door handles and things like that. You know, smooth out the front even a little bit more. Uh, so it looks very similar to the previous one, but you know, just more refined. Um, you know and then underneath you know' it's, it's all new um, including the powertrains uh, so and I, I just got a, a note back uh, from uh, my contact at, at Jaguar Land Rover to, to verify what the, the powertrain combinations are going to be for North America. Uh, so they, they introduced you know, they announced the new uh, evoke a couple of days ago in the UK uh, and over there um, you know it's going to have uh, the, the two liter, Ingenium four-cylinder, gasoline four-cylinder that you know we see in a bunch of the uh, Jaguar and Land Rover products now uh, with the turbo. And it's going to have uh, 200 and, 246 horsepower uh, for North America. Uh, so pretty much the same as what you get in uh, like the F-Pace and the Velar and uh, the XF and the XE. Uh, and then uh, in addition to that, uh, the Europeans will will... For now, at least, you know, continue to have the option of a diesel. Uh, but there also, there's also going to be a 48-volt mild hybrid version uh, with the 2-liter gas engine. And for North America, uh, that one will have 300 horsepower. Uh, and, you know, like the mild hybrids that uh, that FCA uh, launched this year on the Wrangler and on the ram 1500 uh, you know, it's got a belt driven starter generator 48 volt lithium-ion battery um, it goes a little bit beyond what what uh, Fiat Chrysler's done um, in terms of you know, really utilizing that um, that capability for enhancing the start stop so um, when uh, in the evoke uh, when you get below about 11 miles an hour, uh, with your foot on the brake, it'll actually shut off the engine at that point and coast down, you know, just on electricity. Uh, and then if you lift off the brake, you know, it'll it'll restart the engine automatically. Um, you know, so you, uh, it should get pretty pretty decent fuel economy with that with that combination. And then about a year after launch, uh, at least in Europe, they haven't announced anything for North America yet. But at least in Europe, there will be a plug-in hybrid version as well with a three-cylinder uh, turbo engine. Uh, but right now the the two liter uh, with and without the mild hybrid will be the the options for North America when it launches here next year
1: yeah that's gonna be interesting to see how many more of these sort of luxury EV hybrid uh, crossovers we get I think they're trying to pick up some of the shine from from Tesla in some ways and say no no look we have batteries too
2: yeah well you know uh, Jaguar announced uh, I think about a year and a half ago um, that you know from 2020 onwards they're going to have electrified options in all of their models you know which will range from the 48 volt mild hybrid stuff up through full battery electrics you know so we've already got the iPACE. the Jaguar iPACE is their first EV um, the uh, speculation is that the new XJ uh, which may arrive by the end of next year will also be a battery EV only uh, so no more no more engines excuse me, no more internal combustion engines in the XJ, which would be interesting. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see other EVs uh, from Jaguar Land Rover, as well as additional plug-in hybrids and uh, mild hybrids across the board. Um, so, you know, this is this is the first uh, first of their models with the mild hybrid system, but we're, we're going to see that available on everything they build.
1: Yeah. I really want to try the three-cylinder Ingenium engine, too. Like, that's, I like that four cylinder I yeah, remember the engine what I've driven it in but uh, I like it a lot and so the three cylinder version of that's going to be interesting I like the the snarl of the triples mm-hmm. in everything I've tried it in yeah
2: yeah it's got an interesting um, sound that's different different from a four cylinder um and you know, not not quite like anything else out there
1: Yeah the closest I can say if you've never heard a triple they they sound like the eighties and nineties, uh, GM V six, the, the 60 degree. So the, the 2.8, the 3.1, it's different. It's not exactly the same, but the rhythm is, is close to that. It has, it, you know, and again, cause it's three versus six. So there's, you know, math, mm-hmm. uh, um, but it reminds me of that. Like it just has this, this great little snarly sound. And certainly with what we can do with both electrification and now turbocharging, three is not a problem they have plenty of punch. Um, even the Mitsubishi 3-cylinder is okay in the Mirage. I'm only okay. But like in the Mini, the the triple they have in that is really powerful. Yeah. And y- you'd never know that it's a 3. It it just like it's it's isolated enough and smooth enough that just gets the job done. Yeah, I mean and, even
2: even the 1-liter you know, 3-cylinder that Ford has and you know that had in oh, yeah. uh, the Fiesta and the Focus, uh, you know, is so- Really nice engine, you know. It's 123 horsepower, but it had 168, I think, pounds of torque. You know, and like other uh GTDI engines, you know, it it has that torque from down low. You know, I mean, I remember the first three-cylinder engine I ever drove back in 1990 um, in the Geo Metro.
1: um Oh yeah, <laughs> the whole car shook.
2: <laughs> yeah, there, there was there was absolutely nothing pleasant about that thing. You know, I mean, but it had a it had <laughs> throttle body injection and a three-speed automatic transmission um and you know that car you know the car weighed about 1700 pounds i think 16 1700 pounds um and it was driving it on the driving it at 65 70 miles an hour on the highway was you know like riding in a bucket of bolts you know loose bolts yeah. you know being shaken constantly it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a terrible experience but they've come a long way since then, you know. That thing had, I think, had about fifty-five or sixty horsepower. Uh, yeah. So it, it, they've they've come a long way. They're they're fun to drive. They sound good now. They're fuel efficient, and it, it's a it's a good way to go.
1: Yeah, uh, it'll be. I think triples are going to be like as as internal compression sort of gets edged out to a certain degree. Like we're going to see more of that happening is engines are going to get smaller you know like and the idea of using now the, the mazda uh rotary as a range extender so there's going to be that kind of stuff happening we're going to see a lot of really interesting engines
2: yeah and and we'll be we'll be hearing more from mazda this week uh at the la auto show they're gonna they're gonna be revealing the new mazda three on tuesday night and uh i've got uh, got some meetings with the folks from mazda to learn more about what they're doing there as well
1: they need to put manuals and everything um <laughs> all trim levels, manual transmission.
2: And just, just get uh, rid of the safe. automatics altogether, just manuals across the board.
1: I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And you could, you could sell it as a safety measure. Like, no, 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 we will not we'll you to will never have driving.
2: unintended acceleration again.
1: Right. Um, and you won't be distracted by your phone. Because <laughs> uh, uh, maybe we should all just ride motorcycles. Because I don't think you can text in motorcycle.
2: Oh, don't, don't say that. Somebody will find a way. <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, So the next uh, topic we we have, you actually wanted to cover a little bit about sort of EV charging and charging etiquette. You you picked up a uh, podcast episode from uh, Talking Tesla and they were talking about a a crowded supercharger and that crowd at the supercharger reduced the current that uh, was available to charge the cars.
2: Yeah. So, you know, as as more and more Teslas have been hitting the road, especially in the past year, uh, you know, one of the issues that's been cropping up more frequently uh, is lineups at Tesla supercharger stations because, you know, everybody wants to use the free DC fast charging if they can, uh, rather than charging at home and paying their utility. And so, you know, that that's led to a couple of things. You know, one is, you know, people jumping lines, uh, which, you know, please don't do that. It doesn't matter where you are. Just you know, don't <laughs> jump lines. You know, be, be courteous, you know. You know, if there's a lineup of people waiting to use a supercharger or or any other charger, you know, from any other company, um, you know, wait your turn, you know, <laughs> you, well, listen, listen, now, remember like what your kindergarten sir, teacher told you, you know, share and, and wait your turn.
1: Yeah. Superchargers, from what I've seen, tend to be located in centers of commerce. You know, they have one right down in the mall parking lot here in town. And so. You just have to plan ahead, right, and understand that when you need to charge the car, it's probably going to be some, some of a wait. So you like plan it together with like lunch or something, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: you know, so what I would do. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of them, you know, as you said, are you know, they'll be off in the corner of a mall parking lot, you know, or, you know, you know, on the highway superchargers, you know, they'll be in, you know, in, you know, some fast food joint or, you know, some other, some other service center, some, some location where there's other, they try they always try to locate them where there's something else where you can go grab some lunch or something while you wait, you know, half hour, or 40 minutes for your car to charge. So that's, that's one thing. And that, that applies across the board to everybody. The other thing, you know, and the thing in particular, you know, with this podcast, you know, I saw some, you know somebody tweeted out to this particular episode of talking Tesla that we'll, we'll link to. the The thing that they were complaining about here is even though they were using the superchargers, it was they were actually getting pretty slow charging. Um, you know, so Tesla superchargers are nominally rated at 120 kilowatts of charging power. So, you know, just for for reference, you know, your typical you know your, your 110 volt outlet at home, your 120 volt outlet at home, you know, will put out, you know, about with a with a, on a 15 amp circuit, you know, we'll put out about you know one and a half to two kilowatts. Uh or no, not even that. Um it's 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 a little more than one one kilowatt of power. When you switch to, you know, a 220-volt, um, you know, level 2 charger at home, you know, or most of the public charging stations, you know, you'd get, you get typically get either you know, anywhere from 3.3 to 7.2 kilowatts. The superchargers are rated, like I said, at 120. But the problem is if you have multiple charging outlets, um, you know, and, and the superchargers typically have anywhere from 6 to in, in, six to 12 uh, actual charging points at each station. In some cases, there's a few, I think that are now up to, they've they've added more to add more capacity. So they're now up to as many as 18 chargers at one location in in a few places. And, you know, that's great in terms of letting more people plug in. But the problem is uh, it's only as good as how much power you actually have coming into the station from the grid. Um, You know, it's kind of like you know, imagine you know you've got a certain amount of water pressure in your your water main, and if you you know turn on all your showers and all your sinks, um, and hook up all your sprinklers outside and run them all at the same time, you're not going to get as much water pressure as you would if you only ran one at a time. It's just you know it's physics, and when you know when companies are charging, you know they're they're figuring out where to put charging stations, one of the things they have to keep in mind is um, you know, not just the, the real estate, but they also have to look at you know, how much actual capacity is available from the grid at that location. You know, can they actually get enough power? And one of the issues that's increasingly cropping up with supercharger stations is that a lot of the sites don't have enough power coming in to actually support all of the charging points at full power levels you know, all the time. So, you know, if there's, you know, one or two cars charging, they'll get the full 120 kilowatts. But what these guys were talking about in this episode of Talking Tesla is that when they plugged in, they were only getting about 30 to 35 kilowatts. So instead of, you know, charging to 80%, you know, in 30 minutes, you know, it would still, you know, it would take a couple of hours to get to 80%. And so, you know, if if there's, you know, if you're going to a Tesla supercharger station, you know, if there's a lot of people there, if it's, you know, if it's if it's fully loaded and, you know, everybody's charging at once, there's a good chance you're not actually going to get your full fast charge that you were expecting. And you might have to wait around longer. And, you know, this, you know, as, as various companies, you know, are expanding their DC fast charging networks like Electrify America, you know, the VW subsidiary that's building out a network right now and ChargePoint and EVgo and others, you know, they're having to. You know, when they, when they do their, their planning you know, to figure out where to actually set up stations, they have to work closely with utilities and um, power providers, you know, to actually make sure that they're, the sites that they're picking actually have enough power available to handle a full load. Uh, and this is one of the things that my my employer, you know, Navigant Research, you know, our, our consulting arm, one of the one of the things that we do is we work with some of these companies, you know, to, we actually have models, you know, that, that look at how, you know, how much capacity is actually available because we do a lot of work with utilities as well. You know, so we, we have a lot of data on, you know, where, you know, where capacity is actually available and, you know, helping these companies do this sort of thing. Um, And, you know, there's other companies, you know, doing similar things. So it's, it's, it's actually a lot more complicated than just finding some empty space and, you know, plopping down some chargers and, and, uh, you know, hanging out the, the open sign, you know, to tell no, people no, you need like charge. big
1: transformers and stuff too. Right? Oh
2: yeah. It's, and you know, yeah. battery, battery backups. And you know, another, another issue, especially with the DC fast chargers is, you know, at home, you know, when you're using your electricity at home, you know, you, you know, for the most part, you probably have, uh, for residential purposes, you know, you you probably pay, you know, maybe two different rates, you know, for your electricity, you know, per kilowatt hour, you know, for your peak periods and your off-peak. And I think the national average for off-peak is about 11 and a half or 12 cents a kilowatt hour, you know, and it might be, you know, for depending on where you are, it, you know, it's probably maybe double that for peak periods when there's a lot of demand. And places like California during peak periods, it can actually go as high as like 40 cents a kilowatt hour but for commercial customers it can get really expensive because what they actually do for commercial customers is they do what's known as demand charges and right. so you know you get charged um, you know per for every kilowatt hour you use you know at the meter but um, if you know it's those rates are based on you know assuming a certain average use over the course of a month and if you have peaks that go above that average um, that's, they, they call that demand charges. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, let's say you're using, you know, 200 kilowatts, you know, for a business. And, you know, at some point, you know, during the peak, you know, if, even it might only be once a month, that might jump up to 300 or 400 kilowatts of power that you're, you're sucking down at any point in time. They actually bump up your rates based on what that peak value is rather than what the, what the overall average is because for a utility, you know, they have to, they have to build out capacity for what the peak is, even if you're not using that peak most of the time. And so for commercial customers, they have these demand charges. And if you're running a DC fast charging station, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, superchargers, um, you know, and some others, you know, may not, may not give you full charging powers. They may be deliberately capping it, even if there's enough capacity they may be capping it uh, internally within their charging system to make sure that it never goes over whatever the, the demand charge level is uh, to keep their cost down. Because if, st- if you start paying demand charges as a commercial customer, your electricity rates can go up very fast uh, and it costs a lot of money. And so, you know, a lot of DC fast charging stations are putting in big capacitors or battery banks, you know, to act as buffers to limit, uh, limit those peaks.
1: Yeah, well, and that makes sense too, and it also smooths out the demand on the the grid, which I think makes grid operators happy. Oh yeah, uh, versus just like all of a sudden everybody charges their cars and oh, <laughs> power sags. Um, uh, what I find amazing is that the companies that build gasoline filling stations don't really seem as interested in investing in charging infrastructure. You'd think that they really they should know that business better than just about anyone about getting people in refueled and out sure there's going to be some changes, but they have, they already, they have established brands.
2: Well, it just a lot, doesn't seem a lot of like the, there's a, a lot much. of the stations themselves are franchised. So they're owned by individual, you know, small businesses. They're not necessarily owned. You know, you go to a shell station or, you know, mobile station, it's not necessarily owned by shell or Exxon Mobil. Uh, that
1: That's true. They just, they sell, you know, they, they, they get the benefit of cooperative marketing and yeah. fuel supplies. Right, and, and yeah. the fuel right. supplies and so on.
2: Sense. Um so but that said, you know, a lot more um, gas stations are, you know, starting to do deals with the EV charging providers like EVGO and ChargePoint and, and Blink, you know. Uh, and you know, so you know, for example, you know, the two EVGO fast chargers that I know of that are close and close to my house, you know, within a few miles of my house are actually both like, located at gas stations. You know, they're in the corner of the gas station. Yeah.
1: But if you like ExxonMobil, I so doing a partnership, I guess it sort of absolves you of some of the the investment if it's not a thing that's going to take off, right? If this if this is a fad, um, you not you haven't burned up a bunch of your own capital to invest in something that doesn't take off but it also seems like you're inviting another middleman in there and you're you're going to create a situation where if it does take off now you've got these deals that you can't really unwind at least for a period of time and so you're you're hurting yourself right by by not owning that infrastructure that charging side of things right uh, and, well and, and making and, it an and, in-house product
2: and oil companies are actually starting to invest in charging infrastructure especially in Europe more so in Europe than here so far, although there is some going on here. But uh, you know, Shell and BP, for example, have both um, invested in uh, charging infrastructure companies in uh, in the UK and, and elsewhere in Europe. Uh, the, you know, to and they're putting in charging stations. You know, at all the you know at all their stations, all their all their uh, fuel stations. So that's that's something we're going to see more of. You know, we will be seeing more of. You know the the fuel providers. You know, actually investing in the EV charging side as well.
1: I think it would make sense if I were running a fuel company. I'd say, you know what, we've got lots of money anyway right now. Before we don't have lots of money, let's expend some of that on what might be the next thing. When you consider what's going on with with uh, EVs, although it, I think also the the impression of EV market penetration is different than the numbers so yeah well you know i mean i think you know here
2: here in the u.s you know plug-in vehicle uh market share is still you know less than one percent of total sales right uh so you know it's still you know put especially for dc fast charging stations you know i mean that's you know that's an investment of you know ultimately of it can be a several hundred thousand dollars to put in a dc fast charging station um you know um, Electrify America. You know they're spending two billion dollars over the next four years. You know to put in uh, a couple of thousand locations across the country, and so you know that's you know that that's a lot of money. And if you're not sure that you're going to get the the return on that in, in terms of revenue from from people paying to um, you know to charge their vehicles, you know that, it's hard to justify that. But I think you know sure. increasingly you know as as we see electric vehicles or plug-in vehicle sales start to start to ramp, continue to ramp up, um, and, you know, I think our, you know, our new forecast, um, you know, is hitting about 15% market share globally uh, by about 2025, uh, that, you know, we're going to see more and more companies, you know, getting into that space. I mean, right now, you know, the, the big charging providers here in the U.S., you know, ChargePoint and EVgo, you know, they still are not, profitable, you know, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the stations that they have are vastly underutilized. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's hard to, to make the case, um, you know, to, to do that if you, you know, if you can't say that people are actually going to use it and, and pay for it.
1: Yeah. I can understand that. Uh, that's going to be fast growth from, from one for less than 1% to 15% and
2: well, that's six years. Yeah. Well, let keep in mind that's, that's globally. That's not, just for the U S oh, right. um, you know, so there's going to be a lot more growth in other parts of the world than, than there's likely to be here.
1: Huh? Well, just to, I guess the, the key is like, don't be a jerk at the charging station.
2: Yeah. And you know, if um, you know, don't, if somebody else's car is charging, you know, don't unplug it, uh, you know, to plug in yours, you know, wait, wait till but there's, I something. have a
1: Tesla. Don't you know how important I am? <laughs> don't um, you know who uh, I am?
2: Uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, you know, um, you know, if you if you are charging your car, especially if you have a plug in hybrid, you know, keep track of, you know, the, what the state of charge is. And, you know, as soon as your car is charged up, you know, whether it's a battery electric or a plug in hybrid, you know, if if your battery is charged, don't leave it sitting there hooked up to the charger all day. You know, go move it. Let somebody else use that charger. You know, so, you know, be be courteous to everybody.
1: Yeah. Because that's, so, I mean, that's the best way to be anyway.
2: I was going to say something, but I'm, I'm going to refrain. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, so a couple of things you had, uh, you went down to Miami Yep. and you've recorded some audio with uh, Brett Browning and Pete Rander from Argo, which we'll tack on to the end of the podcast. But also, uh, we got a couple of questions. So, uh,
2: yeah, you should do Let's those see. first. Let me find it here. We actually just have one question, I think. Um there was a couple of older had, questions that we had answered previously. Okay, um, uh, we had one on Twitter. Oh, okay. Well, go get the get the Twitter one while I pull up the one from email.
1: Okay, so the the one on Twitter uh, comes from uh, William Calhoun, uh, and he says, "Should I trade my 2013 GTI with 105,000 miles for a 2015 EcoBoost Mustang with 32,000 miles, and that would cost nineteen thousand dollars?"
2: Um, what year was the GTI? That's, uh... Uh, 2013. So same, same model year for both. He's got a hundred thousand going for a low mileage Mustang, EcoBoost Mustang. Well, the
1: the EcoBoost Mustang is a 15. Oh,
2: 15. Okay.
1: 15. So a couple of years newer, um, for 19 K. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Like a, thir- a 2013 GTI is probably pretty close to paid off, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I, w- I would, I would hope so. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you, you know, if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have to um, make payments on the thing, you know, even if you have to, you know, spend a little money on, you know, some maintenance and updates on the thing, you know, new tires, new brakes, you know, maybe some CV joints, things like that. If you're not making monthly payments on it, um, I would say stick with the GTI.
1: I so and of course again, you know it also I'll depends on where that. you live
2: too. You know the yeah the, the GT you know front wheel drive GTI you know, might be a better choice, you know, especially if you live in Northern climates.
1: i really like rear wheel drive in the snow. I just
2: <laughs> I love it because it's, it's oh, I, that I, bit I of do power. too, but you know, that doesn't necessarily I mean, I, you know, I don't know this particular person right, and their, we're, we're their level of skill. Um, you know, I've you know, I love driving rear wheel drive cars, you know, any time of the year. Uh, but if you, if you don't, then uh, you know, if you don't have the, the right level of skill, then that, you know, that could be problematic. That's true. That's true. I think I
1: I like the Mustang, especially the most current version of it. I think they've done a really really good job. They they stiffened it up structurally, they softened it up suspension-wise, and I think it's fantastic. Uh that said, while I like that the EcoBoost has less weight on the nose so it handles more more precisely or or is has a bit more of a delicate touch, I don't know that that's the Mustang I would invest in. Something about the Five liter, <laughs> just does it.
2: V8 Mustangs you know, and they're are just both, awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean it's overkill for sure, uh, but also, you know, the Mustang's just a less practical car than the GTI, and if that's okay, yeah, I mean nineteen thousand is not a bad deal. It's also not quite as exciting to drive as you might think, so you should try it. The I, I, again, like the the beauty of the EcoBoost Mustang is the the poise. It's not the power, right? Because it's actually it's it's not all that quick. Yeah, it's 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 a lot more of like a sort of all around sports car than the the GT. That's a little bit more brutal, Uh, but you do miss out on that like the back seat and the cargo hatch area of the GTI, and you may be okay with that. But if you're looking for more performance. Just get some, you know. Look at that big Volkswagen aftermarket.
2: Yeah. <laughs> for Although, GTI. you know the the the, Jeep, the the Mustang has a surprisingly spacious trunk, um, you know, and That's if, true. if you fold down the back seats, you know, you can put long stuff in there. Uh, you know, you're not going to get you know tall stuff in there, but you, you can definitely put some longer yeah. objects in there. You can you, know, you can fit a big flat screen TV in there, things like that. So it's it's not totally impractical. That's true. And
1: uh, honestly, the, the Ford has a big aftermarket, too. So it's, it's actually probably not that much of a leap to get the $19,000 Mustang and, you know, carve off a little bit more budget to you know, uh, play with the boost and just get more power out of that engine, which is certainly capable. Oh, yeah, you can, you can uh, get a
2: lot more than the 315 horsepower that's, that's come stock from that engine. One other yeah. thing, to, one other factor to keep in mind is insurance prices. Uh, depending on where you live and what your driving record looks like, uh, you might end up paying a lot more for insurance for the Mustang than you would for the GTI. So you probably want to, you know, call your insurance agent and you know get some quotes on that before you make a decision one way yeah. or the other.
1: The The practical, for, you know, dad in his 40s that I've turned into likes the GTI a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but also the uh, retiree dad in his 50s <laughs> really loves the mustang i, I, I haven't you. quite achieved that yet but that's you know uh yeah i uh, you gotta drive them gotta definitely definitely drive them. Nineteen thousand, like that better be a pretty clean car uh i don't really know what mustang used mustang prices are like that's low miles so i'm assuming that's why the price is, is that high uh that seems expensive to me
2: uh well but, you know it could be i mean if depending on if it's um uh you know got the performance pack and things like that you know You can, you could get up, you know, new, you know, that car could get up into the mid to upper thirties. So it's, you know, that may, I would definitely, you know, go into like kbb.com or Edmunds and, and uh, get a price estimate for, you know, get all the details on what's on that car and the mileage and everything, get a price estimate from them and and compare it to what's being asked for that particular one that, that you're looking at. All right. Well,
1: whatever you decide to do, or if you need some more bad advice, let us know. <laughs> I say it's bad advice; it's not actually bad. It's just I, I always feel self conscious giving advice. My like I would be like, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to get the Mustang and I'm enjoy it. And if I don't like it, I'll get something else. But you know, cars are commitment, and I understand that. So,
2: all right. So the email question we had was from Gareth. Uh, I wanted to know: Do either of you know why so many manufacturers made retro styled cars in the late '90s and early 2000s? So far, I've come up with the new Beetle, Plymouth Prowler, Jaguar S-Type, Mini Cooper, PT Cruiser, and Ford Thunderbird. I'm sure there are many more, uh, but it was definitely a phase of car design. I feel like there must have been something about the late 90s that inspired this, but I wasn't paying attention to popular culture at the time. Dan? Money.
1: <laughs> um, I Look at those cars, right? Thunderbird. Beetle. Mini. The age uh, of the people that like that—that's nostalgia. Look at look at the general sort of timeline of nostalgia they're trying to sell. Those people that they were appealing to were at the height of their purchasing power at that time. I mean, especially the the PT Cruiser drove the Greatest Generation just absolutely friggin' out of their minds. (laughs) Um, That car sold like unbelievably quickly. Uh, and for above asking price and it was a neon with a minivan engine and a beam axle and yeah <laughs> it was classified as
2: there, a light truck. There, there's a like, there, there's <laughs> a, actually a surprising amount of those still around the area where I live including my next door neighbor uh, has drives one so you know they there was a, a certain well, appeal th- to it when it first came out
1: how old is your next door neighbor like ballpark
2: They're older than me
1: Okay. So, right. Um, And I think that that's, that's kind of the, the appeal of the thing. I mean, even the 2005 Mustang was clearly a retro pre like retro.
2: I I think Uh, the new, the S 197 Mustang was kind of like, you know, the end of that period of retro design. It was one of the last big examples of that.
1: Yeah. And I, so, and the S type in particular, Jaguar didn't really have anything to, they didn't have anywhere to go you know they've been making the xj since the early 70s late 60s i think when late the, 60s, it was basically yeah. a series 3 yeah um and it was just sort of that that series 3 look just updated over time and you know in, in the i think 99 or 2002 something like that they, they went to an aluminum version of it but it was still basically that was the d98
2: right or mm, yeah the s no, the s type was d98
1: s type was d98 xj just they went to an aluminum version of it but it was basically the same car uh and then when did the the
2: the aluminum xj the x300 um was actually i think it might have shared a few components from do 98 but not much i mean it was it was mostly brand new um that's a hell of a car yeah by the way and they're cheap there there's, <laughs> yeah there's also somebody here in my neighborhood that drives one of those uh, no, no prowlers though. Um, yeah. No... Well, the prowler was a weird
1: thing. I'm not quite sure what the prowler was. Well, the,
2: the, I mean, it was the, the prowler was you know one of those things. You know, throughout the especially through the the 1990s, you know, up until you know the early 2000s, um, you know, Chrysler did a whole string of wild concept cars, like every year for the Detroit Auto Show. Oh, that's have, right. The, they did the Atlantic. Like, yeah. Ugh. They had they had a. You know, at least one and, and usually multiple um, very interesting concept cars, you know, starting with the Viper. You know, the Viper was really the one that kind of kicked that off. Uh, I mean, there was some stuff before the Viper, but the Viper was the one that really kicked it off in 89. And then, you know, after that, every year they, they came up, they tried to top it, you know. And most, you know, some of them they considered for production. Most of them never made it to production. Um, you know, the, the original first generation Neon was actually one that did make it, um, to, you know, at least it was inspired by the, the concept, the neon concept. That's
1: right. The concept, the concept that had a built-in trash compactor.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> and you know, there were, there were others, there were some that I wish had made it to production, like the, uh, the Dodge Copperhead, you know, which was yep. a smaller, you know, Roadster, um, uh, more, you know, the ME412. Yeah. The ME412. Um, uh, you know, but, during you know once once they got into the Daimler Chrysler period you know a lot of that started to fade away and we didn't have the, the really wild concepts but the, the Prowler was one that for some reason caught a bunch of people's attention uh, you know it was like this classic you know Boyd Coddington hot rod kind of styling and you know they yeah. they managed to use a lot of off the shelf components to build it you know it was obviously very much of a niche product it was never going to be a mainstream product but figured out what the hell we can we can build it you know relatively cheaply uh and and so they did build it for a few years um and you know but well i think all, too
1: like that's that's the lh uh,
2: yeah yeah i mean that's where, that's where that's where most of the components it. came from was from the lh and
1: and so the lh had been engineered to be either front wheel drive or rear wheel drive or all wheel drive yeah uh, <clears throat> um and so The Prowler was, I think, probably the only rear-wheel drive LH-based car. And I know it's not direct LH, but they put that LH transaxle in the rear. The V6 was in the front. That platform had a longitudinal engine anyway. Uh Uh, And I think a lot of the other components were all parts bin, like you said. It was an interesting design exercise, but it was always like a very, very niche product. And the folks that I knew or knew of that had them were always, you know, folks that had – Spent their their glory years, shall we say, in the fifties and, and early sixties. You know, they were they were you know older. Now they're they're in their seventies, um, and it's just it's older folks who wanted to to have some of that fun that didn't want to actually buy a thirty nine Ford or a you know a Deuce Coupe or something. <laughs> they wanted to have a car they could use, and, and that's, that's valid. Yeah,
2: yeah. Funny thing is. Uh, In the early mid 90s, you know, uh, when I was I was working for Kelsey Hayes as an engineer. And at that point, we didn't have our own test track in Michigan. Um, And so we rented track time at the Chrysler Chelsea Proving Grounds. And, you know, so I'm usually out there at least a couple times a week, you know, doing doing testing and development. And uh, so, you know, I'd see, you know, all kinds of odd machines running around there, you know, various uh, development mules. And one of the stranger ones that I saw were the Prowler, uh, mules, uh, once, once they had given the green light for production, you know, so this would have been about 96 or so. Um, you know, so it, the, the mules had the, the front end of the Prowler, you know, that was shown on the original concept, uh, which I think the concept came out about 93 or 94. And then they, um, on the back, they had a modified version of a Wrangler cab, you know, with with this you know pointed no, long nose sticking out in the front. It was really bizarre looking. If you look around, I'll, I'll look around see if I can find a, uh One of the spy photos of this thing uh, online somewhere. I'll put a link to it. But um, it, you know, see see some strange stuff running around Chelsea in those days.
1: Yeah, well, and Chrysler was, I think, just great at bringing those concepts to production. Uh, quickly and cleverly and that's uh, I think that's what drove some of that retro side of things you know the, the PT Cruiser was a, a concept before it became production but it was, it was well received uh-huh. and they figured out very cleverly how to make that that car for you know not a whole lot of money and just make it print money for them and it was you know the same, same as the neon the neon was very profitable for Chrysler Uh, and so the Thunderbird on the other hand
2: was not profitable for anybody.
1: Right. And the Thunderbird and the S type were the same thing. They were due 98. Uh, the Thunderbird, I think was the last gasp of due 98. Um, yes. And the S type was together with the Lincoln LS and, you know, it's a platform that eventually became the Jaguar XF. So they, they got some life out of it, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why, I get the idea of the the Jaguar S Type. I I do, and that's I think it's a lovely design exercise. And it's it, the problem was like where Jaguar was at that point in time. They they really should have done what they eventually did with the XF and introduced a new a, a new look and a new just like this is this is what Jaguars look like now and what we're doing now. And they eventually got there because uh, if you look across the lineup now, there's nothing retro, uh, which, which I think is great. But at that point, they were. They, that's all they had.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Enough of that.
1: Yeah. I don't know where it came from, but uh, I can't wait for the 1980s retro.
2: <laughs> oh, I can awesome. wait.
1: I mean, it, it
2: depends. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, bring, bring back the Fox Body Mustang, you know, the, right? uh, the original Jijaro uh, uh, Sci- Scirocco, BW Scirocco. Yeah, uh, and the... I
1: would not mind if, if Volvo brought something square out again. <laughs> I mean, the XC40 is kind of angular. Yeah. You
2: get it? Yeah, well, we'll see. All right. <laughs> yeah, what, what goes right. around comes around, I guess.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, so, in the meantime, you can listen to us talk. Well, you can listen to Sam talk to uh, the folks from Argo AI, and uh, then we're going to see you next week. All right. See ya.
2: So here with Pete Rander, President of Argo AI, Brett Browning, um, VP of Robotics, (laughs) I think, okay. And spent today riding around Miami here in some of your automated test vehicles. And uh, it's been, what, four months, four or five months now since, uh, yeah, something like that, since I visited you guys in Pittsburgh. And uh, it's been clearly some good progress made on, on the system um and you're you're operating in a very different environment here in miami than in pittsburgh um describe some of the the some of the unique challenges that you've faced here you know uh since since you started testing here what about february of this year What, what 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 have you had to address
3: yeah so i think um so we're testing in pittsburgh Dearborn in Detroit and uh, Miami and we've been operating here since about February but it was very small for quite a while uh, and then we, we started scaling up uh, pretty recently um, I, th- I think uh, all of those environments are, are very different there is absolutely commonality um, in Miami uh, you know I guess it was described today as being the double black diamond of driving um, and I I think the real challenge is that uh, you know uh, as we think of it as it's sort of like this Melting pot of international driving styles. It's a, it's a very big city. It's, it's a tourist destination, so you've got a lot of people from lots of different places who come in and drive very differently. Um, and you put that together in a place that has a, a lot of unprotected turns. Um, there's a lot of construction. It's very dynamic. It means that there's a lot of people driving who um, you know may be lost, uh, but, and also negotiating things like uh, unprotected turns, which are tricky. Um, and so. Uh, add to that, there's a lot of uh, people on bikes of, of various types, whether they're mopeds, scooters, motorbikes, bicycles. Uh, we've seen one-wheeled things going around. Um, uh, and then there's a lot of pedestrians. So that, that just creates an environment that is is really challenging. There's a lot of people moving around in that in, in different forms. Uh, and for for a driver, whether it's self-driving or otherwise, you know, the, the vehicle has to... Detect everyone and reason about what are they doing, right? What we call prediction, um, and and then make good decisions in that. And uh, you know, I think one of the real challenges, we, like we we uh, really think about safety first, but really we think about the, the customer, and, and that means you've got to focus on safety and comfort. Um, and you know, here that means that that yes, of course, you have to make safe decisions, but but there's a lot of times where a human driver would not stop, um, and If our AV was too overly cautious in those cases, then we would actually create a very awkward situation, and so we've got to really try and drive as naturally as we can for the environment. And for Miami, that is different than what it is for Pittsburgh, which you know has a different set of challenges: very old city, narrow streets, uh, very complicated intersection geometry. You know, it's three D. There's lots of hills and things like that. Um, so, so Miami, you know, I think has really been pushing us a lot on that sort of prediction front, and I think is a, is, is a great place to help. Mature the technology because going from there to other cities, um, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, will will have pushed us in a lot of way to deal with lots of pedestrians, bicyclists, vehicles all at the same time, um, uh, so that other cities actually start to work easier.
2: Yeah, that that whole idea, the the prediction engine. Uh is an interesting one that i think a lot of people don't think about you know it's it's something that we as human drivers do pretty naturally uh you know we, we, we become accustomed to it and we we it's becomes intuitive but to to program something like that you know you you've got the sensors that try to detect what's going on in the environment around the vehicle And you've got a path planning system that's figuring out, okay, where am I, where do I need to go? And you know, looks at the map and figures out the route. But in between that is that prediction engine. How how do you go about design, you know, teaching a computer to Predict what other road users are going to do, especially pedestrians and cyclists. You know, I mean, cars. You know, the physics of a car means that there's going to be certain limitations on how fast it can change direction and make 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 changes. Uh, but a pedestrian can can turn on a dime, you know, or a bicyclist. How how do you go about doing that? What's how, must be a, a particular challenge
3: yeah no i think in fact if i look at self-driving that's probably the the area that is least technically mature right um you know we've been doing lots on perception for for decades and motion planning decades the the prediction problem really is the one that is um, uh, the least mature and the hardest as a result um uh, and that's really where you get at the intersection of uh yes of course machine learning is extremely important but uh, machine learning is really good at, at um, learning from lots of examples that you've seen before, but you've also got to deal with the completely unexpected, all right, and, and how to meld that together. that That is really hard. That's sort of uh, what we view as being one of the longest uh, technical challenges or biggest technical
4: challenges to deal with. And that division um, Brett just spoke about is quite good. From a safety standpoint, you have to be prepared to, to responsibly handle everything, no matter whether I have a good model or not, uh, but the the sophistication that comes from the driving comes in by learning more and more of the different cases of behavior and recognizing when the models that you have are insufficient. They're not representing what you've been seeing for a while, so that you know that you need to you need to back off from your from your more confident driving at speed at closer proximity, understanding that cars drive by other cars and pedestrians and bikes at very close distances when we understand what's going on but even as humans do when we don't understand the behavior and we're saying hmm my mental model says i don't know why that pedestrian is weaving is, is just standing they don't seem to be paying attention we give them more margin, or we slow down, or we do both to try to do that. And what's going on in the, in the architecture of Argos self-driving system is really working that angle to say that there's always a fallback. It's not a level, you know, something below a level four self-driving system where an assistant doesn't need to have all of those full backups. Here, for full level four, you need to be able to handle anything that the world throws at you, but handle the typical stuff or even the unusual stuff uh, much better Mm -hmm. to maintain that flow, that tempo.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And, and give you some of the examples, right? We've seen people back onto the street trying to take a picture of a nice mural, right? right. And so and there's a lot of those here
2: in Miami. There's a right?
3: lot of those here in Miami. Uh, at the same time, you'll see people standing on the road, pretty close to the traffic flow, but but they're actually not intending to cross, mm-hmm. right? And if you were to stop for them, um, then then you create that awkward situation. And mm-hmm. and differentiating those is hard, even even for vehicles, uh, despite physics. Um, you know, people will take uh, unprotected turns in, in front of you uh, even when you have right away. And, and understanding when that's going to happen and and not overreacting to situations where it's not going to happen, um, you know, is, is, is a challenge, right? And and that's sort of part of what we've been doing in Miami is really trying to develop our system to be able to handle those two situations and react when it really should and not when it shouldn't.
2: And, that, you know, that very situation was something I, I saw this afternoon where, you know, We were waiting to make an unprotected left turn. It was a lot of traffic on the the other side of the road coming towards us. And um, a couple of, uh, a Mercedes G-Wagon and a Bentley Bentayga, pulled out right in front of us and basically forced their way in, forced a a gap in the traffic, you know, where, know, where the AV that we were in, you know, was waiting for a gap. They basically pushed their way through and made a gap, you know, forced somebody to stop and let them go through. Um, and then you know what the our car you know waited for that to happen but it, it recognized that those, those two vehicles were coming from a parking area to, the, to our right and coming across and, and waited for that didn't try to didn't try to get in the way. so I think that's all and all of this is part of this whole idea you guys have of this naturalistic driving of trying to, yeah. to fit into the environment and you know one of the things I've heard a lot of people talk about around AVs is you know having to tune the systems, to different regions, you know, wherever it is you're operating, you know, because you have different kinds of habits. I mean, driving here, as you said, is different from Pittsburgh or Detroit, but it's also going to be different from Tel Aviv or Seoul or, or exactly. Beijing. Uh, you know, so how much, how much manual work? You know, once you've figured out, you know, the, the fundamentals of a system to control an automated vehicle, how much then manual work has to go into really refining that to work in different different places?
3: Yeah, I, I think there's always going to be a certain amount of uh, tuning to the local environment in, in lots of different ways. Like, think, think of uh, prediction models. You need to get data to learn what those are, right? Unless you go drive there, you're not going to experience it. Um, same thing for the decision-making side. What we're trying to do is build uh, as much of the system to be as common as possible, right? Um, but then also make it uh, very easy to customize those pieces. Um, I, I expect for a long time to come, we will always need to have engineers that go on the ground and really understand and be like, oh, wow, this is different than what we've seen before.
4: How do we, how do we deal with this? Um, uh, and that's where the, the tooling that we're developing right, right now, knowing that that, that that challenge is there, it's not just about creating the self-driving system itself. It's about creating the tooling and infrastructure around that. Um, in fact, that ends up bringing in a much broader skill set into the company and helps us accelerate uh, as, we've, as we've been growing and going faster and faster. It's bringing in that broader set of, of people with broader set of skills to help create all of that tooling to set up the, that problem so that you can much more quickly identify even that there is a difference. The more automated processing you can do offline, from even limited data, the faster you can get the examples where you go, ah, that doesn't fit the model. Let's look further at that, and being able to drill down and get to the examples that are that are true, meaningful examples helps that process go faster and faster.
2: Okay. Um, you know, one of, one of the topics that came up today was, you know, again uh, around the environment. This time in terms of weather. You know, uh, you know, Miami. You know, obviously quite different from from Dearborn you know yep. no snow on the ground here today yes uh, as there was in, in Detroit yesterday when I left um, but you know you're here on the ocean and you know it's a city you know you're dealing you know, the city that's dealing with rising sea levels and because it's essentially built on a swamp you know it's you know it's not uncommon when it when there is a rain for water to just come up you know through the ground and to have localized flooding and so I'm, I'm curious you know, if you can talk a little bit about how that, how that is dealt with, how the system deals with, you know, when you suddenly have 6 or 12 inches of water on a road, you know, how, how, do, how do you use the maps and the sensing and everything to, to deal with that kind of situation?
3: Yeah, I think uh, uh, we've, we've certainly experienced some of that. Um, uh, I think also the rain, too, can be incredibly localized. Uh, you know, I think it was yesterday there was a sun shower, and it was, it was literally... Yeah, you know, maybe not even a mile of, of area that was that it was raining on. Um, so I I think there's uh you know we think of the map to us really as sort of like a geospatial storage. If there's things that happen in a in a in a local area, then that's what your map is there to sort of store. And so things like uh, you know roadways that that might commonly flood, that's information that we can encode. Um, so that, you know, a vehicle gets the right kind of cue to, to reason about. Um, uh, and that may be, in a lot of cases, like, wow, there's been a bunch of precipitation, probably flooded. I, I think I might want to slow down. Or maybe I want to route around that area, right, and, and just avoid it if I can and take a, a longer route, but I'm not going to have to deal with uh, giant puddles. Um, uh, I think there's, uh, there's also, you know, sort of how the way we approach this is that part of the reason to go into those cities is to really understand what the problems are and then make sure we develop the tooling, not just the autonomy tooling, but the operational (coughs) tooling around that so that we can um, uh, really make the system, the whole system, work as well as possible in that location.
2: Yeah, and you know the the mapping, the HD mapping is a is a core part of making these systems work. Yep. Um, you know the, the first step, this first step when when you go into a new city like as you're doing now in DC, is is building those HD maps. Can you talk a little bit about that process? How does that how does that work for you?
3: Yeah. So I, I think uh, you know um, the way the AV operates, we need a map of the world, uh, and that sort of is the way to provide a lot of those cues about what's going on, um, and so. Uh, the, you know, the the AVs are the mapping cars. There's nothing special. We drive around and we use that information to to build that map up. But I think we tend to think of it much more as a sort of a living representation of the world. You know, right outside our terminal here they they actually repaved that um, uh, two days ago. Uh, uh, They they stripped it and they paved it and then they added a crosswalk that wasn't there before. Uh, And so the maps you guys are driving on today now have that crosswalk, right? Because we we have to build those maps to be very um, dynamically updated. Uh, uh, And so there's a lot of tooling that is being developed and will continue to be developed to be able to do that efficiently. Um, uh, But that's, I, I think, the... The way we sort of think about the problem is that by having the AVs driving out there and having them be the mapping vehicles, it means that we're always able to take that data and update the map very quickly. Um, And then that representation becomes, it's, it's the geospatial
4: memory for the vehicle, right? That last word is particularly important. It's the memory. It's a living memory. Just like a person remembering what's been happening, uh, I remember that uh, uh, there was construction. Well, that probably on a roadway. That probably means the next time I drive through, it could look different. I could be looking for things. As I get more comfortable with an area, What what is that comfort doing? It's me gaining confidence that what I'm expecting to see is typically going to be there and and I can start recognizing more subtle differences you know first time in a city drive by the whole thing could change practically on you the second time through and you might not notice much at all but with this as a, as a living memory of, of what's going on. And it's more than just the geometry or paint lines. It's also giving us a place to remember that there might be a particular intersection where there's uh, maybe, maybe the behavior is unusual there. Well, why is that? Well, maybe it happens to be next to a stadium, all right? People getting in and out of a stadium aren't the regulars there. And there's often large numbers of people coming in and out. And you're much more likely to see massive flow of jaywalkers in an area, the easier to encode and it's what people are thinking about oh that's right there's a game this afternoon maybe i'll maybe i'll route around it if i can uh, or maybe i'm picking someone up there in which case i will know how to conduct myself and kind of set prior expectations that helps me helps at the routing level but it also helps just right there eyes on the ground understanding what's likely to happen around me
2: so that example you know stadium you know i mean we're we're right near the um american airlines arena here where the the uh magic plays I think magic yeah I mean or the heat yeah anyway right next to this arena here and you know after a game you've got this you know flood of people coming out Um, is that something that you would um, I guess how how would how would you capture that you know with, with but with the vehicles driving by you know when they see a lot of of pedestrians in a particular area that are jaywalking. Is that something that you would transmit back to the control center and share with the other vehicles? Is that something that would be, um, you know, perhaps embedded somewhere in your map data as this is a location where there is frequently, you know, a lot of pedestrian traffic, in conjunction with certain events happening and then maybe you also incorporate calendars as part of your control system, is that? You want a job? Hey, <laughs> That's, those, all of those things, are, okay.
4: I think, are all elements that go into it. Thinking about the, what something Brett brought up before was this operational aspect. There's, there's getting the technology ready to be on the road, but from an operational standpoint, you'd want to set up an operations team to have all of those tools available to say what is typical when we're 30 minutes before game time. There are typical patterns that you can observe, and if you've been there, you know it's like, oh, that they're you know they never start on time at this thing. It's always late, so 30 minutes before is nothing. That one runs like, you know, clockwork. 30 minutes before is when everybody's trying to rush in because they want to be in their seats beforehand or whatever that might be. But that's still different from game time. Is the stadium, you know, quarter full? There was some you know storm. There's not a whole lot of people in the city. It's not something
3: that they, they you know, may redirect some
4: lanes. They do this in Pittsburgh, right? There's some lanes which. Uh, Only two-way, and then game time. No, they're all one-way. So you'd want to arm an operations team to be able to say, "Well, what's going on? Bring information back, share it to the extent you can, but also come in and use uh, the expert judgment, understanding that broad situational context to know what happens next. Maybe there's a report of an accident. All right, we may not have even encountered it from an operations standpoint. You'd like to begin immediately rerouting. if you don't need to drop somebody off at a destination nearby. So all of that gets in and supports it. So there's actually a human and robotic or self-driving aspect that's coupled when you get to this fleet operational level.
2: Trying to to give the the robot as much real-time information as possible to make smart decisions.
4: Yeah. And what's really neat about it, I mean, it's not that people don't do this already. You know, anybody running a fleet operation and dispatch, what's really neat here is the the efficiency and clarity of the communication. You know, self-driving systems aren't as good as the human at the other end at getting full understanding from a couple of words. But now, by engineering it, we can actually be even more efficient and faster at communicating precisely what things are there. When somebody says, hey, 6th is closed, it's like 6th in Miami it could be 6th Street or avenue, north or south, east or west, you're like, wait a minute, which? Which? I need more information. I didn't get it.
3: And it could so. be an individual lane versus like the whole roadway, right? Yeah. Um, all of those things get much more precise. I mean, uh, from Pittsburgh and, and I think with Dearborn as well, right, there's a lot of potholes that show up over oh, the yeah. You can get very precise and say, wow, I saw a pothole right here at these exact map coordinates. Um, uh, and communicate that around the fleet very quickly so that everyone else immediately knows
2: this information so the the sensors um, have enough accuracy enough precision uh, to be able to detect a pothole and and then store that information and share it to the rest of the fleet yeah. um, you know I mean we you know in Michigan uh, I haven't spent any time in, in Pittsburgh in the winter, but certainly in Michigan, you know we get some pretty massive yeah, craters. No, I've you know? seen some, <laughs> um, and so you know uh, would you know uh, do you foresee you know the system being designed you know when it when it does when it does see a pothole you know and as human drivers when we detect a pothole you know we if we can we will try to avoid it you know. Oftentimes we can't, you know, especially if we're driving at night. Oftentimes you can't see them, uh, or you know, if it's full of water, you know, if it's if it's yep. ra- you know, yep. it's raining, um, you know, is that something that you'll be able to uh, program in, you know, to try to avoid those? And and is that something that's in the system now, or is that something that's on your to-do
3: list? So, so avoiding things is definitely built into the system. Uh, Avoiding potholes specifically, uh, we don't do that today. Um, But that that
4: will be coming soon, particularly as we're heading into winter. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting, too, thinking about it from a prediction standpoint, think about how important it is. For myself driving i know i will want to try to avoid either straddle a pothole or if it's too big try to go around it Uh, but it's very helpful from a prediction engine standpoint to know that humans are also going to be driving vehicles that will be coming up on that pothole and suddenly again i've taken something that if you're just following and don't know it's there you may be surprised that someone suddenly slams on the brakes or swerves unexpectedly it's unexpected the fact that i can get that out even though there may have been only one car that's observed you. Can so see those other
2: signals that people right. have encountered. Right,
4: so you're suddenly like, why don't I? Why don't I start giving a little more margin to the car ahead of me? Why don't I? Maybe I choose not to be driving exactly alongside another car. It's a bad time to pass if somebody's doing that and might not realize that I've just entered their blind spot at the moment they think they can swerve away to do that. So you can actually work the safety angle um, for everyone involved in this and the comfort for the people in your own car. Uh, while remaining confident driving through it. And so something as simple as sharing information on a pothole, but precisely, Mm -hmm. right? Again, it's the the precision of being able to do that, getting back to that that geospatial memory uh, of what's there, the map. Uh, allows you to to be very precise about it. It's not somewhere on this block or two. It's it's very precise, so that you don't end up becoming uh, your own bottleneck right. for the whole city. Is like, yeah, those cars slow down in those couple of blocks, and there's no good reason why. We and then, can we can make it very precise and very targeted.
2: Yeah, and then when you've got. Uh, things like you know the transportation mobility cloud that Ford is building, you can tie into that, feed that information in, and that can be accessible to the to the city, you know, to the city fleets that would go out and, and repair potholes because they yeah. they can know exactly where it is and and you know what the what, what needs to be done.
4: That's a fabulous point too. I'm sure one of their frustrations is somebody reports a, a problem and yeah. it's pretty hard to like work. Where is
3: lines. it which yeah. and, and how do I prioritize, right? Is that cat yeah. hole bigger than this one? Um that has gotta be nearly impossible. Yeah. Um whereas uh yeah network fleet plugged into that can actually now provide much more precise detail much more promptly. And and you've also got to remember the cars will be out on the road much more frequently. And so the ability to see these things much earlier is, is uh, you know, that that's something that it offers.
2: And you know, even even in situations where um, you know the car may not be driving in the same lane as the pothole, you know, a human driver, if the pothole's not in their lane, yeah, they're they're, they're probably right. not even going right. to think about it. But the sensors, you know, the the lidar might might pick up that pothole in the adjacent lane and say, hey, I didn't hit this pothole, but you know, it's it's here. You know, let everybody else know. So. Right. Again, you've got that, you've got more information available and a way to share it, so that's, that's great. Um, so, what are, you know, kind of, where do you see, you know, your efforts right now, and what are the big next steps in terms of development of, of this AV stack that you guys are working on?
4: Yeah, so as, as you experienced today, you're seeing a lot of the core uh, driving skills, the individual skills, uh, are largely there. Uh, what we're what we're having to work on right now, what you know, between us and, and launch, are getting into things that are the the less frequent or more complicated scenarios where, where things start to interact. All right, there is a bicycle. <laughs> Bicycle's fine. Parked cars, pedestrian, oncoming thing. You mentioned a box truck that's completely stopped that forces you fully into oncoming lane of traffic, uh, where it isn't always so clear even how to get enough visibility to do this. These these kinds of cases, and in the in the ever-rarer cases uh, that we need to handle. Um, the engineering of the system to be able to get it to uh, a fully manufacturable off the assembly line part in cooperation with Ford, these are some of the major challenges uh, that, we're, that we're really working on to, to get there, to have more than just a prototype, where we happen to, say, pull a driver, but instead, say, ah, a scalable product uh, that, that has the kind of robustness, the, the fault tolerance, and uh, kind of all the safety engineering that goes into it uh, with a a supply chain that supports that
2: great well gentlemen thank you so much for your time today this has been great it's been a great day here in Miami great to experience the progress that uh, that the Argo team and the Ford team are making you know on this this whole you know as Sharif called it you know the the whole system the whole self-driving system not just you know, not just the virtual driver, but everything that goes around it to, to make it a useful reality and actually start to have some, some real impact on society. So thank you so much, uh, Pete Radner, Brett Browning, and uh, back to the show.